Good evening. Thank you all for being here. You are most welcome. I am a representative of Almanac, a Love and Monsters Appreciation Activity Club. We have been hearing disturbing rumors of dissent in the Doctor Who community, worrying whispers about our most hallowed of stories, love and monsters. There appear to be people out there who do not enjoy love and monsters. Hard as it is to believe, these people exist and appear to be involved with the popular online show, The Doctor Who Podcast, i.e. you. Almanac would request of you, the hosts of the DWP, to discuss this subject and try to come to some sort of consensus, if you can. You have authorization to solicit what I believe is called feedback from your listeners. Please report back to Almanac at your earliest convenience. I have faith in you all. How do I know this? I know this because you are the Doctor Who podcast. And you know what? You are most welcome. Yes, hello and welcome to another episode of the Doctor Who podcast. And for the first time, well, this is this is ever, I've been waiting to do this for a very long time, I can open the episode by saying there's an Englishman, an American and an Australian, all in a pretend caravan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll get the punchline to that joke before the end of the episode. You've got, what, 40 minutes to come up with one? James, go for it. I'm not entirely certain that's long enough, to be honest. It took me three years to come up with that. <laughs> but it is, it is the first time that we've got the, the three current DWP hosts in the same space at the same time. Hello, Trevor, and hello, Michelle. Hello. Hello, hello. Wonderful to have you both here this time to discuss the second of our Burning Issues subjects. Uh, I hope you're enjoying our little mini-series here. We've got one more to come after this one. This time we're going to be talking about Love and Monsters. Now... Let me let you into a little bit of a secret here, listeners. We schedule, we actually plan what we're going to say week on week, sometimes months in advance. Now, as hard as that may be to believe, this is something that uh, we insist on doing because we don't just want to sit down in front of a microphone and waffle on for ages, despite that being precisely what I'm doing now. But uh, but Trevor come up with this wonderful idea um, to re-examine Love and Monsters because it's one of the most... Um, affectionately thought of episodes, uh, according to Trevor. It's something, along with the unicorn and the wasp, I think he cites as his two favourite <laughs> New Who stories. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoy Love and Monsters, but not as much as Trevor. So we thought we'd just put it under the microscope and bring Michelle in for a little bit of sanity as well. That, that's about right, isn't it, Trevor? Mm, absolutely. I think I'm here to break up any fights that may may occur. Quite possibly happen, I'd say. I mean, we've, uh, we've, we've certainly been set a very... Uh, weighty task by the uh, officials at Almanac this episode. Uh, <laughs> Love and Monsters is one of those stories that I think, certainly for me, seems to divide fandom right down the middle. Either you appreciate it and love it for its comedy and for its subtlety and for its, uh, I don't know, al almost fourth wall type of feel, or you look at it and go, this isn't Doctor Who, this isn't what I signed up for, this isn't why I tune in each week to watch the show. And I, I thought it would make a really interesting discussion for this episode to, 
I don't know, try and get to the bottom of the pros and cons of Love and Monsters and, you know, see if we can uh, come up with some sort of consensus. I, th- I think the chances of reaching consensus are probably um, slim at best, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> but uh, I have had the opportunity to rewatch this just a couple of days ago, knowing I was going to be talking about this. And I have a feeling I haven't seen this for a good many years. This was transmitted in 2006, wasn't it? Yes. And yes. it was the first official Dr. Light story and, and what that meant essentially if you don't know already was that the production crew film or record two episodes together and David Tennant and Billy Piper in this instance flitted between this episode and another one that was being recorded at the same time and as a result of that you have one story that doesn't feature the Doctor very much. Now I think the Dr. Light episodes and the Dr. Light concepts is worthy of a discussion on a podcast in their own right. Um, This is something that's been, well, up until recently, actually, the norm, really. Uh, We've come to expect a Dr. Light episode, and it's produced stuff like Blink and um, Turn Left uh, in in the past, certainly throughout the, the Russell T. Davis era. However, the question as to whether or not it's a good story or even a piece of um, of, of Doctor Who, I, I think I'm going to start off fairly unprecedented, Trevor, and agree with you. And I'll, I'll say that this most certainly isn't what I would call typical Doctor Who, and I don't think it mm. even pretends mm. to be. Uh, this is, I think, Russell T. Davis having the, or taking the opportunity to push the format. Uh, as you rightly say, there's a lot of fourth wall pushing here, if not complete breaking. I just like very much the way he creates a very different feel to the show um but uh before i get into any more detail there trevor why don't you give us your um your, your reactions to this in case there's anyone out there who doesn't know what you think of this already <laughs> well i i mean my my case for not really liking love and monsters is is pretty clear I've, I've heard it said quite often that doctor who is an unlimited format that you can do anything in the doctor universe that any sort of story you know there's 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 no boundaries uh I think stories like Love and Monsters show that, well, yes, there are stories that just don't belong in the Doctor universe. Doctor Who, to a certain extent, has a very rigid format that it, it deals with monsters, it, it deals with you know the Doctor taking care of that threat in a, a, a very major way. Now, I think stories like Love and Monsters, while it does have the Doctor at the end of it dealing with the threat, the Absorbaloff creature... The majority of the episode does deal with characters that either A, we've never heard of before and we're supposed to care about and accept them as major parts of the story, or B, they're minor characters in the Doctor universe, such as Rose's mother, who are catapulted into a major role in this story. What I don't think works in Doctor Who is out-and-out comedic episodes. Doctor Who has always had elements of comedy in it, all throughout its, you know, 49 plus years, there have been stuff that you can laugh at, that you can appreciate the humorous side of. But when Doctor Who veers into outright comedic territory, I think that's where it fails. And certainly stories like you say, Unicorn and the Wasp, and definitely Love and Monsters are, are, are stories which show that I don't think pure comedy episodes work in the Doctor Who format? Well, I I would say that I don't think Love and Monsters is an out-and-out comedy. I think Unicorn and the Wasp is much closer to one. But before before we get into that, Michelle, what do you think? What are your impressions of Love and Monsters? Well, you were going to make the the exact same point that I want to make. I don't think this is an outright comedy. There are certainly comedic elements all the way through, but there's also a very Mm. poignant and touching story going on here, um, you know, specifically about 
Elton uh, delving into his past and figuring out what happened. In fact, I, I also hadn't watched this in, in a long time, and I was struck when I rewatched it by the, the lump in my throat that I got towards the end as Elton realizes that the reason he's kind of obsessed about the doctor is because the doctor was there when his mother died and that he had, he had kind of repressed that memory. Uh, and I think comedy, for me, comedy is at its best – when there is also some substance underneath it. Uh, I think you have a valid question there, Trev, about whether this is typical Doctor Who or should be Doctor Who. But uh, as funny as this is, and there are some brilliant scenes, I love the scene with Elton and um, Jackie in in the laundromat. <laughs> just yes. just some really, there, there's some great stuff in here uh, that works really well as a story. I, I actually think this is a, a really sweet, funny, and also serious story but you're right. I guess I would have to question potentially whether this – it's certainly not a traditional Doctor Who story. Uh, and I do respect and admire the show's right to try new things, as they were doing mm. in this one. Mm. Um, and for me, it may work as a story, but perhaps not the best Doctor Who story, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's not It's not a Doctor Who story. I mean, Trevi's completely correct there. This is a piece of drama that has – its roots in Doctor Who and I think it acknowledges that as early on as five minutes in where you get flashbacks to three separate stories that we've seen already that was um, Rose Aliens of London and the Christmas Invasion uh, but mm. that essentially is it and like you say Trev um, thrusting Jackie into the limelight here uh, for a period of about 10 minutes I think and, and we see parts of her character um, that we are familiar with i.e. the comedic the fairly you know, flippant individual. She flirts with, you know, the kitchen sink, essentially. But we also see, as as Michelle said, the flip side to that this time. And I, I think, you know, you, you get to see the dramatic, the, the woman underneath, the woman who's experiencing the loss of her daughter, her complete uncertainty of where her daughter is. That's actually examined here. And it's something that Doctor Who hasn't really done in the past is to take a look at the impact on the relatives when these individuals jump in a blue box and travel off in time and space you know what happens to the people who realize they're missing who have to you know live with that and I think it's done in a wonderfully poignant and touching way and for me this is Camille Kaduri's strongest episode ever <laughs> to use a phrase it's you just get to see how good an actress she really is. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, as a general rule, enjoy the Dr. Light episodes. I think it's a fantastic concept. And it's also a way of the production team being able to give us the 13 episodes a year we want by, I suppose, effectively managing the lead actor and actress's time. But I think there are far better examples further on in the uh, new series that use the Dr. Light concept much more effectively. And, And I agree with you, James. I think stories like Blink and turn left, which I think show the Doctor even more effectively, even though he's not there. He, he is still coursing like a vein all through those stories. You still know he's there. But I think stories like Love and Monsters fall too much to the comedic side, too much to, you know, the pop culture side, without realising that this is Doctor Who. Doctor should be present, even if he's not present in a Doctor-like story. Yeah, I, I, I think it's... As, as you rightly say, this is the first real attempt at a Doctor Light episode. Apparently they toyed with the idea with the long game the year before and because of the success of whatever experiment they were conducting there, they decided to go ahead and, and write a story like Love and Monsters that features the Doctor you know, for about five minutes. And 
whether or not you, you, you like that concept or not, I, I think they grew into it. Yeah, and I think Love and Monsters, once again, was a bit of an experimental episode, and I do think they pushed it too far in certain areas. Um, I mean, again, Michelle alluded to this earlier on, you know, it, it's not overtly comedic, but the comedic elements are balanced by the very sad and very, you know, melancholic and dramatic elements. And sometimes humorous quips work really well if they're set against the backdrop of a, you know, a tragedy, or indeed, you know, a personal tragedy. It doesn't have to be something on a huge scale. And everything here is set against the absence of Rose, particularly for the scenes that uh, Jackie Tyler is in them. Whether or not they work as well, I, I think a lot of it depends on your, your taste in humour. And I think we talked about that with Ashley, Ashley Freeze, uh, some time ago now. And if, if you like slapstick humour, if, if you like innuendo, um, then I think you probably do like this a little bit more than others. But in the, in the terms or looking at it as a Doctor Who episode, then certainly the joke at the end of the episode where Elton's sitting there with a paving slab on his lap, I mean, that, for me, is really mm. too far. Mm. But is it is it any different to Madame Vestra's long tongue in The Good, Good Man Goes to War? You know, it's uh, everything is relative. I love Innuendo as well. I mean, I love nothing more than the double entendre. But I think things like that have, have their place. I don't expect to get a paving stone joke, a sexual paving stone joke, in Doctor Who. I mean, this is the story I grew up with <laughs> since I was eight years old. I, I don't expect to get those sort of, in inverted commas, gags in Doctor Who. You know, it's interesting, the story, because of a couple of those gags, that being the main one, sort of has this reputation for being slapstick and full of innuendo. And there's really only a couple of moments that, Humor is yeah. so hard, and I, I have found this a lot, not only in doc televised Doctor Who, but lately listening to, to some of the audios. Sometimes it seems like, you know, I really enjoy 90% of the humor in an episode, and then they just go that one or two, three jokes too far. And it's I think it's hard to pull yourself back, maybe, as a writer or a production team, but I kind of wish they knew exactly where to, to draw the line. I also didn't care for the joke about the face on the rear end of the Absorbaloff. Um mm. In a more innocent way, I didn't care for the, the running through corridors at the top of the episode. But within that, there was some wonderful, um, well, like I mentioned, the laundromat scene, but but also some of the humor um, when when Elton at the very beginning, well, they open with that action sequence, of course, with, with the monster and the doctor and Rose. And he comes to you and he says, oh, that actually happens later, but I just put that in because it was a brilliant opener. Yeah, which, which is pretty much what we do on the podcast. Well, well of course. <laughs> I, I think you've touched on something that's, um, that's prevalent throughout this entire episode. I mean, first of all, I do agree with you. I do think the humorous parts usually work. I, I did find the Scooby-Hoo bit. Everybody refers to the running through corridors a bit as a, as a Scooby-Hoo thing because it is pretty much exactly the same as a child's series here um, called Scooby-Doo. And it was it was very, very funny. I found that funny. That was just to my to my tastes. But it's it's the way that this whole episode plays with fandom. Um, and, and I'm sure it is on purpose. And I think the whole subgroup of Linda uh, is, is a bit of a reference to the way Doctor Who fans, you know, sit around and analysing... Doctor Who episodes, pretty much as we're doing now. Um, you've got Elton talking to camera for the majority of the episode as well by way of a bit of narration. And that, I think, is possibly you know, another allusion to fans. Fans feel the need to try and get things on the internet, need to tell people about their experiences and, and so on. But, uh, but on the whole, I, I think this entire 
piece is probably probably fairly derogatory towards fans because there isn't a normal character or someone who you could say is normal throughout the entire episode. I'm I'm not so sure of that. I and I did question myself as I was watching it. You know, is this a loving nod to fandom or or is it derogatory? And I think you know you're right. You can criticize it and say well well none of them are normal, but I'm not sure many of us are normal. Um, I, I was really kind of tickled by the idea that there were six of them getting together regularly to to focus on Doctor Who. <laughs> and and one of them was a monster, but maybe we don't need to go there. But um <laughs> uh but no, I it, but it also showed some of the good elements of fandom. I mean, these people came together, they found each other and and the next thing you know, they they were becoming creative and I mean you had sort of a version of Troc there even though they weren't changing the lyrics you had um, fanfic being written by by the one gentleman Um, they became better people when they got together uh, and and, and it wasn't just focused on the doctor there were there were other things and yes they're all quirky but they were all lovable I don't know I I think I didn't I didn't take offense at this I actually found it kind of charming I guess is the best I can go with that I, I, I didn't take offense at it either. I really didn't. It's just a case of saying that I think, well, a lot of stuff here is clearly drawn from the real world. And Russell T. Davis was part of fandom for a very long period of time. I mean, technically, he may still be classed as a fan. I don't know. But uh, but I do think it's interesting how you would have a, a group of fans who would get together initially to discuss Doctor Who, who then start getting on having relationships with each other and having interests outside of Doctor Who and then it takes a big like alien person to come in and start saying you're meant to be talking about the Doctor here you know and uh, I think that's quite funny sometimes because especially when you're involved in regular fan productions whether it's writing blogging or even recording a podcast you've always got someone who drags you back to Doctor Who when you were talking about something else <laughs> anyway yeah, yeah yeah well the, I mean I totally agree I mean I'll, I'll go on a total tangent and talk about people who are involved with the JFK assassination, for example. At, at its heart, we have a group of people who are passionately involved with a certain subject, trying to find out who killed uh, JFK. But when you delve into that particular part of the world, you see they're more involved with the detail. They're more involved with research and you know, finding out who the milkman was you know, two, two streets over on, on that day. And uh, that, that's one thing about Love and Monsters that I love, that it shows those scenes with the Absorbaloff marshalling his troops, and they're all sitting there with encyclopedias and vast maps and bits of paper strewn around, that that they're losing sight of what they're originally there for, was to be be part of a collective group. And and yes, they they are about fandom. They they are there to enjoy each other's company. And, And Michelle, you've hit it right on the head that, you know, they're there to enjoy Troc. They're there to enjoy fanfic. But then... They get sidetracked by, by the minutiae, by by the detail of it all, mm. um, and and that's probably the only bit of love and monsters that really works for me because some might look at it and go, "That's just poking fun at fandom," but to me, it's always been that this is what fandom is like. And sure, you might be seeing a mirror, but that's what it's really like. So you've just got to accept that it's a loving tribute rather than a rather than someone poking fun at you. Yeah, I, it, it's actually a very similar theme, I think, to, to train spotting. And, uh, I mean, it's been a long time <laughs> since I've seen that film. But even to the point where they use the ELO track, which I think was fairly prominent in um, 
in train spotting as well. It, it's a case where people are saying, well, life is full of so many good things, but they keep on getting waylaid by, well, in uh, Mark Renton's case in train spotting, it was heroin. Um, and I think the difference being in Love and Monsters is that heroin was Doctor Who and it was, uh, it was mm. pushed by Victor Kennedy. <laughs> Yes, well, Victor Kennedy, I mean, we, we could talk about Peter Kay uh, a little, if you like, and I think when this went out back in 2006, his portrayal was uh, lambasted by a fandom hugely because they basically said that he played himself, you know, he didn't really act very much. And having had the opportunity to go and revisit this, I couldn't disagree more, uh, particularly in the scenes where he does play Victor Kennedy, you know, he's... He, he, there is a persona there, there is a character, and you can say that, yeah, the Absorbaloff just suddenly went into parody, uh, but e- even the story, he, he tries to hold it in a little bit, because this character, this, this monster's name is not an Absorbaloff from, uh, you know, Planet Absorbaloff, he's he's a creature from Klom. Um, and he adopts the Absorbaloff name because both Elton and the Doctor decide that that's what <laughs> that's what he should be called. He says, mm, "Yes, I like mm. that." And the fact that he's got the uh, Mancunian accent all the way through it as well for me really tickled my funny bone. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I accept that, but it's very very funny. Well, I I have no idea who Peter Kay is. He, he doesn't translate certainly over to Australia. And maybe Michelle, you'd probably be the same. You had. No idea who he was before you saw Love and Monsters, perhaps? No, I, I wasn't familiar with him. I mean, I, I think he works well with, with the remit that he has, that he has to be this weird alien creature with a, I, I don't know, a pronounced accent that's slightly strange. Uh, I mean, I knew he was a comedian, so therefore I knew he could act, much in the same way that uh, Catherine Tate is a comedian, and I know she can act. Yeah, I, I mean, Peter Kay was a comedian. He, he made it big on the northern comedy circuits here in the UK, and that is what he's known for more than anything else. He, he has done a couple of skits, certainly, and he's featured in a couple of sitcoms, I think. Um, but he's probably best well-known for a series of adverts in which... Um, He's seen to be putting his parents into a rest home because he wants to use their room for a uh, snooker room and puts a big snooker table in it instead. And uh, he he is just kind of representative of UK northern comedy. And I'm I'm certain Lisa is banging his head against the desk not being here when we're discussing that because, of course, he's based in the north of England and he's very keen on... um, on, on gigging in comedy clubs but uh, yeah it's for me Peter Kay works beautifully and perhaps there was an added level of enjoyment because I knew the history of the actor which of course doesn't necessarily translate uh, globally. Well I think I agree with Trev about Peter Kay doing well with what he had to work with in terms of the role he was given. Maybe not knowing him my opinion suffers a little bit because uh, the villain the the Absorbaloff and, and even his his Victor character was one of the things that I I didn't enjoy as much about this episode. Um, again, it was edging into to being too silly for me, too Scooby Who, if you like. Well, I'm I'm wondering whether that extends then to the origin of the Absorbaloff creature, because as as the listeners may know, this creature was a fan created creature. The Blue Peter ran a competition where they said, mm. "Design a Doctor Who monster." You know, the best one will announce on the show and it will get actually get used in a, in a Doctor Who episode. And and I've forgotten the name of the young lad who actually came up with it, but uh, he came up with this creature that could absorb humans and, and that, that was his main, I don't know, villainous act. 
and uh, that's what got used in Love and Monsters. I don't know. I, I, I think a nine-year-old, given that they will feature certainly within the target audience for Doctor Who in general, has probably got a more valid opinion than us 40-somethings, Trevor, in terms of what Doctor Who monster. We got oh, the absorbable off. Yeah, the, one that, the one that sucks in people into their backside. I mean, if, that's, if in, that, that's what we got. Yeah, but if if you could leave aside the the fact that it came from a nine year old, I mean, would you still have the same issues? Oh, I would probably consider it even worse if it came from a forty year old. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm I'm prepared to cut it a slight amount of slack because it came from a nine year old. Okay, but... if, if we've got, if we've got to look at it through adult eyes, then I do think there is a slight problem with it certainly because clearly, whenever he absorbs a human, there is evidence. There is evidence of it, and you can see it on his body, yeah? And I'm sure these aren't the first four people that he's ever absorbed. So unless we assume that eventually they just disappear, um, then, you know, it, it, it's not overly well thought out. But for me, the, the more offensive thing was the, the mohawk hairstyle and the <laughs> fact that he, re- he ran through the streets of Cardiff in nothing more than a, a loincloth. <laughs> Mm, mm. that's true i suppose just because you absorb people doesn't mean you can't wear clothes but uh, (laughs) the concept of a monster that absorbs humans is is actually not a bad concept i think that could have been realized maybe in a different way And, and i would think that a competition that had lots and lots of entries from from children might generate some ideas that could be transformed by the production crew um into something that would work well they just have variety they just have variety i mean there was they had a competition um to star in 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 the uh in an episode as well or the winner starred in the episode that was in utopia and indeed they've had two competitions i think where they've created mini episodes for something but but i think we're missing the real point here the real point is that trevor's entry didn't win and that's what he saw (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, I know. Just, just, just sour grapes on my part. I know, I know. <laughs> there we go. What was, what was your idea, Trevor? Let's, let's flesh this idea out a little bit more. What would you, what would you think would have been a more appropriate monster to star in an episode? I actually had an idea for a a uh, monster that was in the shape of a salt cellar, ah. and it was actually called a lay deck. and it had various nodules up the side, which could also function as bombs as well. Uh, I thought that was incredibly original. It's certainly original, I'll give you that. Yeah, and uh, would, would, there, would there be a large pepper cell featuring somewhere too? Well, actually, mine was actually a, 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 a more conservationist villain. <laughs> and every now and then it would scream out, exfoliate, exfoliate. Monsters aside, monsters aside, um, I, I just want to go back to the opening of this uh, this episode because I think this is one of the best pre-credit sequences ever, if you like. It's a very well thought out thing. I mean, first of all, it looks fantastic. You see the TARDIS in a, you know, I think it's a dockyard, isn't it? It's 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 certainly near... No, it's, some like, it's like an old warehouse yeah. area. It's 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 very land based, yes. And it, it just reminded me of um the TARDIS cam uh little featurettes you got on the very early DVDs where you saw the TARDIS either materialise or about to dematerialise from a you know a, a very innovative landscape. Sometimes there were, you know, um snow planets. I, I I love that. And the fact that you had the Doctor and Rose feature but only their voices 
only their voices. I just thought it was a really novel idea. And for me, you then went into probably the best title sequence and uh, theme tune arrangement that we've uh, we've seen since the show came back. And I, I was smiling. It was great. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think even in season two of New Who, I was still getting very excited about where the TARDIS was landing. It, mm. it, it was great to see the TARDIS again. And, you know, it was showing up next to a residential building. It was showing up in a warehouse. It was showing up on a barren planet. It, it was just so different to what we were seeing in the classic series. So while I don't think Love and Monsters is particularly innovative in the where the TARDIS was shown, I, I think I was still excited to see it there next to that abandoned warehouse because it was just so new. No, I agree. I agree. And I really enjoyed the way they started showcasing the TARDIS because there were some brilliant screen caps there that uh, appeared on you know, Doctor Who fan screensavers at the time. But uh, I mean, I think even Elton during the uh, during the course of the dialogue says the sound of the TARDIS was beautiful, which was an interesting way of describing that noise. I don't think beautiful is, uh, is it springs to mind when you hear it for the first time. But uh, <laughs> I, I think when you can. But every fan could relate to that. I, I was, yeah, absolutely, yeah, I was that was my point. Yeah, you bet. And I was smiling at that too. This, this for me, I mean, I'm wondering whether or not RTD was writing a bit of what he considered, rightly or wrongly, to be a love letter to the fans and that we mm-hmm. would appreciate all of the, you know, the positive parts of fandom that he, you know, brings out in the story and also the negative ones. And I'm, I I wonder whether he would be surprised by the, let's face it, it's it's generally negative reaction um, that fandom had to this episode. Well, and I wanted to pick up, you talked about what, what Elton said. Elton as a character is beautiful. And, and Mark Warren, who played him, did an extraordinary job. I mean, if you have to have someone who's going to represent a fan in fandom. I mean, he was, he cared about people. He was touching. He, at the time when he realized that, no, I need to, I need to support Jackie. I mean, here was a boy who had lost his mother and a mother who had lost her daughter, in a sense, coming together. And uh, I, I, one of the biggest strengths by far of this episode is Elton. And if he's going to represent a fan, you know, I'm all for it. But yes, I agree. I think Mark Warren, I mean, he's he's, he's a very well-known actor anyway, um, possibly slightly better known at the time than Peter Kay for his, for his acting roles at least. And uh, I, I thought he portrayed Elton beautifully. And I, I loved the sequences where he talks direct to the audience through the... Uh, the video camera. I love the fact that he's, you know, gradually upgrading his kit. So by the end of the episode, he's got a Zoom, <laughs> you know, remote control Zoom. Mm. Um, I, I just think he's a thoroughly likable individual. Yeah, and it was really, really well portrayed. I think going back to what we said as we got into this, um, I find this, again, to be a really lovely, sweet story with perhaps going too far in a couple of places, but mostly a lovely, sweet story that maybe isn't Doctor Who as we know it. Uh, you were talking about the opinion of a nine-year-old. My, well, my nine-year-old came downstairs while I was watching this. He said, what are you watching? I said, Doctor Who. He watched for about two minutes. He said, this isn't Doctor Who. Maybe that's the approach we take on this. It's a wonderful story, but maybe a little bit out of place in this particular show. I'm kind of the same way. I mean, we get a short enough season of Doctor Who as it is. 13 episodes a year, basically, in a regular season well we certainly used to anyway um I, I kind of resent a week of that being taken up with a show that doesn't really feature the doctor i mean i i understand the concept of a doctor light episode but as i said before i think other doctor light episodes have handled the absence of the doctor a lot more intelligently love and monsters features characters we've never heard of or 
don't care about, basically, and it, it takes too much time away from what should be about the title character. Well, let, I, I, let, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I think, yeah, you're right. I, the debate as to whether or not there should be a Dr. Light episode in, as I said, I think is a separate debate. The fact that we've got it here, um, I mean, you can look at it and say, yeah, it's not really a Doctor Who episode, and that's how all three of us started off uh, reviewing the episode at... 40 minutes or so ago and it's absolutely true this is not a typical Doctor Who episode in fact it isn't a Doctor Who episode at all if you're really trying to draw any kind of comparison then you'd have to go all the way to something like one of the new adventures where the Doctor crops up maybe for two pages out of 300 and pushes the plot along in various manipulative ways but even that yeah, is I, a real I didn't stretch. like them either yeah. and, and I'm not surprised because it's the same kind of thing but if you look at it as um, a piece of Who related um material if you like the humor is pushed in slightly different directions to normal i mean i i'd love the fact where elton said the internet went into meltdown and his computer caught fire and there was smoke coming out of it now for for me that that was hilarious it's totally not doctor who in any way shape or tool uh, or form the characters like you say trevor i mean i didn't have a problem uh, empathizing with his characters despite the fact that i didn't know them i i'd really bought into elton's story quite early on I did care about him and I did care about what uh, you know what happened this mysterious evening that he remembered um, you know ages ago and and I think you know ha- having a doctor in the background but just guiding events you know it very much depends on how you like your doctor who and I, I can take it however it comes provided it's a good story would I want love and monsters every week no absolutely categorically not uh, but we've had it this overt on one occasion and as you rightly said the the doctor doctor light episodes that we got in years that came after this episode had the doctor at the center of the plot far more and blink i think you're right that probably is the best doctor doctor light episode and you know you got stephen moffat taking a concept and a format that you know he'd, he'd been fortunate enough to see what rtd had produced so he could say well i don't want to go in the same direction i want to go down my own creative instinct use my own creative instincts and i i think it worked better certainly in later years i i can't can't disagree with that i totally agree with you as a piece of television love and monsters works brilliantly it it, it sets out to do what it sets out to do and it does it really well but as a piece of doctor who no it's not what i want to see in its 13 week run i i want to see doctor who and you know, the format can only be stretched so far. And I, I just think Love and Monster doesn't work as Doctor Who, but if it was produced as something not under that particular franchise, it, it would be a really enjoyable piece of 45-minute television. Well, I think our, our brief from Almanac was to come to some sort of consensus, and I think we've come to a fair amount of... Su- <laughs> I, think, yep, I think we've come crap. to a fair amount of... <laughs> <laughs> like like I said, six people coming together to talk Doctor Who. One of them's a monster. <clears throat> Trev. <clears throat> <laughs> it was always going to be Trev, wasn't it? Trev, do you absorb a lot of impression? Yeah, I've, I've, I've got my claws out. Can you see them? <laughs> <laughs> so long as I don't end up on your butt, I don't mind. <laughs> Big finish with Ian and Michelle from across the Atlantic Ocean. Ian from the UK and Michelle from the United States. Reviewing Big Finish, sorting out the wheat from the chuff and nonsense, saving you money 
on the ones that are not so good. Well, Ian, our mission today is to investigate this new spin-off series from Big Finish. This one's called Countermeasures. Interesting premise, this, because uh, this spin-off series goes back to remembrance of the Daleks. But in this case, uh, the, the characters that they chose to uh, use are some of the supporting cast from that show. There's uh, group captain Ian Gilmore. There's uh, Rachel Jensen, who's a scientist, and uh, Allison Williams, who's also a scientist. And then a new character thrown in, Sir Toby Kinsella, who is sort of the government official that oversees this uh, countermeasures group. Now, the premise is that this is a specialist team that investigates strange phenomena and dangerous technology. It does seem a slightly odd choice to go to to create a spin-off. But actually, when you start listening to it, someone's got a really good eye at Big Finish because this gives them that perfect ensemble cast that Big Finish works so well with, where there's several different interesting characters who play off of each other very well. Um, and I thought that um, the three characters they've lifted out form a great team. It's kind of a little bit like a 60s Torchwood in some ways. But what gives it a slightly new twist is that it's set in the 60s. And that really comes through when you're uh, listening to it. And you, you, you feel you're going back in time to the era. And everything you're seeing and hearing, sound, for the most part, sounds very authentic. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And it, it gave a different twist to this sort of traditional team investigating strange, mysterious happenings thing, which has become something of a trope in uh, sci-fi these days. Um, and they all work very well. Even uh, group captain Chunky Gilmore, who was a little bit of a figure of fun in Remembrance of the Daleks, but here comes through as a stronger character, and I think was, was worth sort of uh, fleshing out into a more rounded role. I put forward the recommendation for a special counterinsurgency group. I didn't expect it would turn me into a glorified security guard. Think of it as being on standby. After Market Garden, I never thought I'd see the day when I was actually hoping something would go wrong. Kinsella? I see, how strange. No, 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 they'll be interested, I can assure you. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Boy, it's been a long time since I watched Remembrance of the Daleks, and I don't remember it very well. So for me, these characters are essentially completely new, and it's been nice to discover this new ensemble cast. There are four stories in the first season of the spinoff series. First story is called Threshold, written by Paul Finch, and uh, has to do with experiments with teleportation that go wrong. Um, one thing I noticed about this, you mentioned the, the whole feel of the 60s. The, these are really atmospheric, not just only in the sense of creating that time period, but but the first one is very creepy. This has got to be one of the most unsettling, creepy stories that I have listened to in a long time. Uh, they really uh, paint the the soundscape with lengthy passages of music and sound effects. That definitely set a tone that's a little different from anything that I've listened to with Big Finish. Oh, the place is a rabbit warren. What the deuce is going on here? Who's up there? I'm not sure that came from upstairs. You know what to do, Carver. Stay behind us, Dr. Williams. The 
The music is nicely evocative of the era, and I had hints of the Avengers or the Prisoner coming through in it. But overall, I found the music design to be a little bit too abstract. It goes a little bit quirky, which just doesn't quite fly for me because it's such a familiar texture of the 60s that the abstract music doesn't for me doesn't really work with but it was it's only a minor issue but it slightly spoiled though that that for me but you're right the atmosphere is very strong in these well i think that first one the threshold for me was one of the strongest entries in this series uh partly because of just how strange it is and the story holds together pretty well it certainly is a nice introduction to the characters the second story, Artificial Intelligence by Matt Fitton, again picks up one of these very common and familiar 60s themes of the Cold War and the spy thrillers with an agent having committed suicide and then the team are following up into this facility where they're doing experimental work. And there were some lovely familiar themes here. One of the things actually that comes to a lot of these stories is that the characters, particularly the group captain, still remember World War Two, and it's a, a, a recent memory, which is accurate people would have had that which you don't get these days these days world war ii is seen as being ancient history and there's references back to um the scientists that were captured in the war and how they were then used within uh, the western world it was very similar to what happened in the atomic project so again some very familiar themes used quite well what about broderick's neuroscientist what did you make of her i don't know if you're aware sir but i have met nadia trevenka before she was a medic in berlin really that is interesting of course. You were there for the airlift. And afterwards. I thought it was only right that we should assist the civilian population after them. A commendable attitude. Well, whatever taste of the West you gave Mr. Venka, she clearly liked it well enough to defect. Six years ago, I believe. I'm sure there were other factors. The only slight issue that I had with this one is that the, the, the science and technology that they, they are investigating becomes quite incredulous for its era with any of these sort of investigating phenomenal shows like the x-files or torchwood you can that, that's always going to crop up now and again and you've got to sort of put it to one side and crack on but still an enjoyable story yeah i was able to suspend my disbelief well enough for this one and and again i think artificial intelligence is another real strong outing for for the countermeasure series in fact these two put together i think uh, form a real strong start to the series and definitely establish uh, kind of a unique tone I got a real feeling of the uh, the Twilight Zone, actually, with these first two and how kind of strange and unsettling they were. But certainly, having listened to the first two, uh, there's uh, interest in going on and listening to the second two, which we will review uh, the next time we're with you. Well, we've had a couple of competitions running here at the DWP for quite some time now. It's time to announce the winners of the competition. Hooray! Hooray! The first competition we had was when I talked to uh, Paul Schoons, author of the uh, fantastic uh, Doctor Who comic strip guide book, which you could all go out and buy right now. It's fantastic. The question we posed was, uh, what is the link between the Doctor Who comics and the Watchmen comics? Now, as it turns out, there's more than one link. So we being the generous lads at the uh, DWP and, and ladettes, of course, uh, were prepared to accept more than one answer for this particular competition. The two uh, 
people we were prepared to accept for this competition were uh, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, who have both contributed to both ranges of uh, comic strips. So it falls to James to uh, delve into the uh, mm-hmm. competition mailbag and pull out the winner for a copy of the comic strip companion. Okay, well, we this was quite a popular competition, I have to say, and we've we've really? had competition entries coming in, yeah, uh, we've had entries coming in right up until fairly recently. So thank you to all eighty four of you who have submitted wow. uh, a competition entry. Okay, Trevor, can you perhaps this time around produce the sound effect for a random number generator? And Michelle, you select a number between one and eighty four whilst Trev is doing so. Thank you. Okay. Dum 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 dum. Seventeen. Dum dum dum. Seventeen. Okay, Trev, you can stop now. Thank you. You get another chance okay. in a minute. Mr. Mark Ellis. Mr. Mark Ellis of Whitham in Essex. Congratulations. You correctly identified Dave Gibbons as the uh, as one of the two potential answers for this competition. So congratulations, Mark. Our second competition was to win a copy of the first Sontarans, and that's a big Finnish lost story. And we were fortunate enough to manage to get the cover signed by the author, Mr. Andrew Smith. And we asked the question. Now, what was the question? The question was: There's a Sontaran in this story. Surprise, surprise. Um, given that it's called the first Sontarans, um, played by an individual who has also played Sontarans in the telly series, and we wanted to know the name of that actor. And, well, let's put Michelle on the spot again, because I enjoyed doing that. What's the answer, Michelle? <laughs> I had to listen to the question, and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> what was the question? It had to do with Sontarans, I know. Oh, I don't know. What is it, the middle of the night where you are or something? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, sorry. I'm having too much can, fun. Can you can you repeat the question? I can, but I haven't got it written down. But hang on. Okay, there's a Sontaran in this play who has also played Sontarans in the telly series, and we were after the name of that actor. <laughs> Trevor, do you know? I have no idea. <laughs> this is fantastic. So neither of you would have won this competition. Anyway, it was Dan <laughs> Starkey. Sh- shame on you both. You should have known that he paid scrap. Oh. Sorry, Mr. Starkey. I should have known. Yes, Sorry. never mind. Never mind. Okay, let's let's switch it around this time then. Michelle, if you can produce a highly innovative, not some rubbish that Trev produced, some kind of sound effect <laughs> that, um, I don't know, is going to be similar to something like Boss in The Green Death, I would suggest. Oh, please stop. I've got a number. I've got a number. Please stop. 118. 118. Oh, I'm going to need to scroll down a bit of my spreadsheet there. Mr. Stuart Kerrigan, congratulations. You, you got the correct answer. He knew it was Dan Starkey. Guys, he must be a real Doctor Who fan. And the signed <laughs> copy of the first on Tyrants is heading its way to you as we speak. Congratulations, both Stuart and Mark. Well, you know what? You might be a friend of the show, but are you a friend of the DWP on Facebook? Mm -hmm. That's the question, because, well, we're releasing a ton of content for our Facebook friends. Not on the main feed, not on the main website. You have to go be a part of the fantastic area that is the DWP on Facebook, 
to enjoy some amazing content that's over there at the moment. Now, up there right now, as I speak, as I record, is the uh, first of our uh, British Film Institute uh, specials, where, where James and co. went off and watched Unearthly Child and did a bit of busking out the front of the BFI and all that sort of stuff. And probably by the time you hear this as well, there'll be some lost, missing footage from the DWP archives to... Uh, enjoy and savour so if you're not a friend on facebook go over there right now and click on whatever button or toggle or or url you need to and be our friend on facebook and get some exclusive facebook dwp content Mm. no you see we're producing so much these days that we just can't fit it all on our feed (laughs) so you have to go and visit our facebook page and it's also a blatant attempt to get more likes on Facebook. Yes, there's that too. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, one other request, uh, if you please, dear listeners. Uh, as you know by now, anyone who's listened to more than a couple of episodes of the DWP is aware that we start most episodes with This is the Doctor Who podcast and you are most welcome. What we'd like to do is ask you listeners to record that intro. Now, in the past, you've been very very prolific in terms of sending feedback and sending that particular line to us so if you would like to open a future dwp then feel free to record yourselves saying those lines and send them to us at feedback at the doctor who podcast.com okay i I think we're done aren't we are we really are we really done there's no more announcements or (laughs) statements or competitions or feedback or plugs or likes we want to talk about are we really really done yeah good (laughs) that was the Doctor Who podcast which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com if you have any feedback please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com you can also find us on Twitter Facebook and via the Doctor Who podcast forums thank you for listening take care is where that we start most episodes with this is the Doctor Who podcast and you are most welcome and we really enjoy putting our listener ver- oh Trevor this is terrible <laughs> I do apologize just as bad as mine I yeah, know I know, I know. I know. and one of the things that we what really do you mean you jo- know <laughs> I'm just to trying to get on with, with the <laughs> I was trying to be con- I was trying to be sort of sy- sy- sympathetic you're not meant to agree that mine's <laughs> 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 you meant to go, oh no, yours was fine. I'm just having a bad afternoon. Yeah, that's what it is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Trevor, who do you edit the most? Who actually records himself? Uh, you know, and when I stop halfway through sentences, restart them so that you can edit it perfectly. <laughs> I know, I know I'm terrible. Right, let's carry on.